Welcome to the Open Deeply Podcast, where guests open up and dive deep into the vulnerable experiences that shape them. We believe life storytelling has power, the power to heal and inspire others. Your journey towards finding your sexual and personal truth starts now. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Lurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm therapist Kate Lurie, and my co-host is sex educator Sunny Megatron. Today is part two with Babatunde Akin Boboye after his telling of his life story. This episode gives us an opportunity to unpack and ask questions about his powerful life. And here is a little bit more about Babatunde. Nigerian-American baritone Babatunde Akin Boboye, also known as the hip hopper guy, is recognized for combining his operatic training with his love of hip hop and trap beats to create a new genre of music that he refers to as hip opera. As a professional opera singer, Babatunde has performed in many notable opera houses across the United States and as an advocate for the performance of art song and operatic works. Written in African and African-American composers, Babatunde has headlined across Nigeria. In December of 2018, Babatunde combined Largo al Factotum by Rossini with Kendrick Lamar's Humble in a now viral car video gaining 10 million views. And it was featured on Time.com, MSN.com, and more. His EP, Della Chita, is available on all streaming platforms. But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is not therapy nor a replacement for therapy. Please know that this episode has themes of physical and emotional abuse. If you catch yourself becoming emotionally overwhelmed by this episode's content, please get support. Call a friend, a therapist, or an emotional support hotline such as 800-273-TALK-8255. So Open Deeply Podcast is about life stories. We devote two episodes to each of our guests. In the first, they share their life story. And in the second episode, we have a conversation where we get to unpack and unravel their story further. And it amazes me how different all of our guests' life experiences have been, but then at the same time, how incredibly relatable they are. You know, it's a real testament to the human experience, how we can see ourselves reflected emotionally in so many other people that on the surface seem completely different than us. So your story, Babatunde, in some respects was completely outside of anything I have ever known in my lifetime. You know, hearing about your experiences growing up in Nigeria were foreign to me. But at the same time, the themes that permeated your early life, like betrayal and abandonment and struggling with assimilation, and then unexpectedly finding your purpose when and where you least expected it, it was like, oh my God, wow, I I, I feel that. I feel that. So there are so many things that Kate and I want to talk to you about this episode, but I'm going to start with your dad. Okay, I don't personally know your dad, but at the same time, I'm like, oh, I know that guy. And I think a lot of our (laughs) listeners know that guy, too. (laughs) Like, oh, yeah. So your dad embodies, you know, many characteristics that that 
society heavily expects men to be wealthy, successful, commanding, you know, along with being so self-entitled that others, you know, including loved ones like you, are often harmed by those characteristics. So clearly, your dad was rewarded with money and prestige just for the way he was. But I want to know what you think that he missed out on due to his behaviors. And also, what do you think men miss out on in general that cling to that old school brand of masculinity? Yeah, okay, cool. I'm glad you like widened it out to men too, because I was gonna say, it, it always looks to me like my dad had like one being a guy, like he, he won the game, he hit all the points, you got it. His like, you know, I was inside of his life, and I could see how I don't want to say empty, but I but I, I think I'm going to. He had a wonderful wife that a lot of people would have uh, been happy to have. She was she worked hard to be a good wife, you know, as part of the her upbringing and the culture. And he was very my dad was very focused on doing the things on having the businesses on having the uh, being successful having the regard on uh, you know doing the the classical man, uh, man thing and also only allowing the, the only the, the emotions that men are allowed like some happiness anger mm, that's about it you can do like confusion <laughs> and some of the other unimportant things but that's it and so I think he missed out. He never, because I, I, I've asked him recently what happened between him and my mom, and he says that he doesn't know. He had all this, but he's like, you know, I bought this and I had this monetary thing and these cars, and I was like, well, maybe he didn't. She didn't want that, and he's like, well, yeah, maybe not. But you know, she had, she could go whatever she wanted. She and I realized at a certain point he really couldn't process that <laughs> that there was other things that could be valued more than stuff that could be purchased, stuff that could be bought. And so I think he missed out on that kind of love, on the on the stuff you can't buy that you get on a, uh, from a family. I, he's remarried since, and you know, he, he has another kid. I don't know too much about what his life is like now. I do know that I'm his oldest son and he doesn't really know me. And honestly, I'm not sure that he ever will because I can't trust him. I can't trust him with my, you know, with me, with my emotions. I can't talk with him. I can't connect in that way because he's so, he's so much of a man, so much of a, a guy. I, I don't know where these these standards came from. It's It's just so upsetting because it really severs off so much of our... Uh, so much of our experience and it's like it, it's like cooking but only having like one spice you only have black pepper <laughs> and that's it and it, it's it's just only living in um certain emotions and going through the world trying to be a man man like that idea of a man i unfortunately i've grown up <laughs> trying very deliberately not to be my dad uh, I guess uh, I have my mom to thank for that and the, you know, the the voices in my head. And I think it's resulted in me being much more empathetic, much more kind. And, you know, I don't have the money my dad has, but I feel like my 
oh god this sounds so cliche i feel like my life is so much richer because i'm happy like all the time everything else that i'm lacking in my life right now can be bought with money and i feel like i've won like the the game of life like the real game of life which is i feel like is just being able to enjoy the experience the journey and and i finally am so i think that's that's what a lot of people uh, a lot of guys end up missing out you get the satisfaction of achieving quote unquote manliness but you miss out on like satisfaction of being a human and, and all of that has to offer yeah it seems like just to use another analogy it's almost like you know if you were to tell someone who is colorblind you know you're you're missing out on these colors they'd be like well i don't know what you're talking about because i'm i'm colorblind I, I only see things in a certain way you know it seems like some of these old school masculine hardcore masculine men it's like they don't even know what they're missing out on they, they can't see it you know yeah yeah, yeah exactly. it's hard to explain to them what they're missing out on because they they're just like i'm knocking it out of the park what are you talking about you know and that also breaks my heart because for a lot of these guys for most of them honestly it's not really their fault they're just trying to do what they've told what they've been told they're, they're supposed to do. You're so, this is what a man is. We've met some people who are like genuine bona fide douches. Like, okay, you're an asshole. I know that out the gate. That's nothing. But some other guys, like I've met guys that I know, hell, I've been one of those guys trying to be a guy and saying the sexist shit and, and like, and knowing it felt like out of integrity with who I am, but feeling like, the, but I have to be a guy and this is what it is. And fortunately, I it wasn't it wasn't all the way like ingrained into my brain where I could like shed it. Um, I was able to shed it on my own. But for a lot of guys, they just grow up trying to do what they think they're supposed to be doing, and it just it's it's just a vicious cycle that so frustrating everything is backwards yeah yeah well it's a topic we'll keep talking about because i think a lot not just not just for women but for men's sake for all genders because i think you know half my practice is men and so many men just kind of feel and these are more modern progressive men and so many of them feel kind of lost in how they're supposed to be let's see so moving on to our next question and this one's about your mom so you mentioned that your mom was revered and respected for her beauty and poise in Nigeria and that she experienced a really brutal shift when she came to the United States and had to adjust to being now a poor single black mother of three children. What do you think many people don't understand about what it is to be a black woman in the United States? And if black women in the United States were allowed to freely reach their human potential unencumbered while given dignity and respect how do you think the image of black family and american culture would change one of the things that happens a lot with african women that come to the united states often and i've seen this a number of times people from the u.s can tell from across the room that that person's from africa that woman's from africa and it won't be necessarily her her facial features or an outfit, those aren't the, re they can't put their finger on it. And it's, it's something in the bearing that there's a, there's a certain amount of, um, I'll call it pride, but I think it's just the basic kind of self-regard you have for yourself when you grow up in a world where, you know, everyone's 
pretty much everyone's the same. Everyone's relatively equal. Yeah, I mean, there's like some someone's born a farmer and someone's guys born rich, some guys born poor. Like that all happens. But but you you you're used to being a full human and being seen. If there's any unpleasant interaction, there's there's a reason that makes sense to you. In the United States, black women who were born and raised here are seen as so there's a double minority thing. They're seen as women. So that's already like, quote unquote, a step down from men as far as the way society interacts with them, men mostly, and then Black. So that having both of those experiences and getting that messaging from society, you're Black and you're a woman. And you see like Black women in the United States regularly having to tell themselves, you know, I'm beautiful, I'm strong, I'm powerful, that reassure to battle the outside messages. But when you don't grow up with that practice, when you don't grow up in that culture, a lot of this stuff will blindside you. And so I watched my mom kind of slowly, I don't, she she still held on to like a lot of her like pride and just, and, and self-worth. After a while of being told that you're, or being told and treated and interacted with as a as a poor black woman, it, it starts, you start to, to believe it and you start to, you, you make decisions based on that. You move through the world a little differently. And so that was the shift she had to make because the, the previous culture, as I said before, she wasn't just like a regular person. She was, you know, highly regarded for whatever reasons, her beauty, her poise, her, her you know, her, she comes from a merchant family. So they, her business acumen, but in the U.S., like she's, you know, just a black nurse with a bunch of kids and and I think she started to started to to take that on which which is hard and it's hard to watch because if without that and to answer the second part of your question what it, it would look like in the United States if these women were allowed to reach their full human potential and just be who they can be I think <laughs> there would just anyone who's interacted with uh has had a long interaction with a black woman can attest to this there's a certain kind of of love and warmth that comes from black women that i've never experienced from anyone else and so to have that just i guess running unchecked and unencumbered and without the need for reinforcement just being in the household i think the entire planet you know because we're everywhere i think it, we, it would just be that much more love and warmth in the world. Yeah, that that first part is so heartbreaking. And then the second part, just like I can picture it. And it just, I don't know, I can just imagine that ideal future, you know, where I just, I wish we could all have that. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Babatunde, you mentioned that you didn't really feel like Nigeria was your home. You didn't really feel like the United States was your home. I want to know one, how do you feel now? And two, what were the benefits and drawbacks of feeling like you were living in that in-between? Well, how I feel now, I feel like I'm both Nigerian and American. And when I say both, like before, for most of my life, I felt like partially Nigerian, partially American, but not either or, but I think of as a Nigerian person, I'm I'm Yoruba, that's the name of my tribe. We travel, we're all over the world. If you've met a Nigerian person outside of Nigeria, highest likelihood they're from my tribe. So me being born somewhere else is not out of character for how we how we roll. 
Now, in, as far as being black in the United States, half of the United, like not half of the United States, pretty much the uh, United States isn't from the United States. And so I just feel, I feel when I realized that and, and looked at my experience and saw like, oh, okay, how many people from the US are, have that experience? I realized that me not feeling wholly American is one of the most American things because none of us are, except for the indigenous people, none of us are wholly American, if you will. And so now I feel like, okay, this is, I am American and I am Nigerian. And it feels good to have the ownership of that and being able to freely move freely in both worlds. Granted, there are things I don't know. And I thought, I, I guess I felt like there was the, the requirement that I know those things in order to belong. But, you know, half of Americans don't know <laughs> don't know a lot of what is required to be uh, to get your citizenship in this country to be an American. So that's also American. But before that, and actually still to this day, I don't think that's changed. I I think I've been given um, the being from the two different worlds has kind of given me a unique worldview of being able to see, for instance, there. Are, you may or may not know this, but there's a racial issue in the United States. <laughs> what? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just read about this like last year. It was really crazy. <laughs> Growing up in a country where there isn't that issue, there's that analogy that's used often of uh, you put a frog in room temperature water and heat it, and heat it, it'll stay there and boil to death. But if you throw a frog in hot water and boiling water, it'll jump out. I feel like because I was I did I did a lot of growing up where everything was um where pretty much everything was equal and being thrown into the boiling water of American racism, it's given me uh, I feel like um a more I don't want to say a more accurate but less less desensitized perception of what of some of the things going on of some of the things we're okay with. You know, the I hear some of the conversations every time a police officer kills an unarmed black person, some of the conversations around it are just so far gone. It's for instance, like it sounds like as Americans, we kind of expect our police officers, the, the serve and protect people, to go around killing people, to kill people every once in a while. And it's so strange because their job is to serve and protect. It'd be like band-aids that cause bleeding. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. something wow. about living in it for so long has kind of normalized that that's where we don't think it's weird when a police officer kills people, but everywhere else on the planet, that it, it's weird. There's gotta be a good reason, but in the US it's part of policing. But yeah, don't don't get me started on that. So I feel like it's given me a different perspective and it's helped me to like find ways to navigate for myself and share and in conversations have a, a share a different opinion that often has been really helpful because you know everyone's problems are easier for someone else to fix. You can never fix your problems, but you have the greatest advice for everyone else. I feel I, I've had that experience in in conversations with other black people just navigating being black in opera, being black in America. And, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that I didn't grow up. There's a lot of trauma that gets passed down when your people are, you know, when, when you have a descendant that was enslaved and then that person was a parent and taught a bunch of things to that kid and it, that passes down. I still, and I've, I've heard this a number of times, a lot of African-American culture is trauma 
responses or trauma survival things. And I know that some of those things I don't have. <laughs> However, I've been in America, as, you know, when I was, I think 16 was, a no, 18 was the first time I was pulled over and I cried about it for a week. I've never had that kind of experience with anyone else. Uh, like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I lost my train. Of well, thought. you know, you talked about how desensitized Americans are to, you know, things like, you know, police brutality, uh, you know. I mean, for a while we woke up when Ahmaud Aubrey and all that happened, but you, you see now that Biden's in, you can see how some people have gone back to napping. Like when I, you know, so quickly, you know, and it, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, in, in the United States, we're so, from the time we're little, we're so trained to think that domination is good or that conquering people is so good, you know, and that the person who conquers is actually superior. But if you think about it, if somebody broke into your house and, you know, did bad things to your wife and stole all your stuff, you wouldn't go, wow, they're clearly superior to me. You wouldn't, you right. wouldn't think yeah. that, would you? You would think exactly. this, this low life just harmed my wife and took my, my stuff. The most low person on the, you know, that's, you know, but again, everything is backwards. Everything is backwards. So <laughs> it's so maddening because it's like the attributes that we should value the least or at least or even detest are the ones we value the most. And it's it's honestly I'm 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 surprised and impressed and shocked that the human race is still around has lasted for the last 400 years because we value destruction and damage and like if you can cause more damage we put you in power. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's unfortunate, but I feel like, I feel like slowly the world is getting back to, uh, it's actually, yeah, getting back to where we were. Cause I feel, I don't think that this was always a thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and blame colonization at the very least. Yeah. That's because, big. Yeah, you know how they say the, there was a time where the sun didn't set on the British Empire. Like the entire world for us essentially was colonized in some way, shape or form. And that's, I think, the reason why this is everywhere. I think we're slowly getting back to where we were before that spread to where we valued connection and empathy. We're, so, we're stepping away from, uh, the, you know, the person who's bru bru who used to be, the person who was brutally honest, we used to like, value that guy but now we appreciate the person who's empathetically honest it's like no 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 that's that's actually a better way to for humans to interact yeah and and yeah i think we're on our way there i hope so yeah yeah i'm perpetually optimistic so fingers <laughs> crossed happening, but I see it. yeah you know and this this reminds me a lot of, of conversations that we've had you know on this podcast and just even between you and i kate like when we were on my podcast talking about secrets you know and, and this conversation reminds me of how we revere and admire power you know, just like, you know, some secrets are good and some secrets are bad, but we don't see the difference between, you know, the good power where you're using it to lift people up and empower and make people feel good and, you know, step into their purpose versus that negative power that's all about oppression and conquering and, and destroying to, you know, be selfish and make more things your own. And I think if we just looked at, you know, the different ways that 
Power can either be beneficial or destructive and channeled ourselves towards one and not the other. We'd be much better off. Yes. Yes. Okay. So here is the next question for you. While you were at boarding school, you painted a scene of being a young boy crying under a window. But you got some comfort because every time you went underneath that window, you could hear California Love by Tupac Shakur playing inside. If you could go back in time and talk to little Bobby crying under that windowsill, what would you say to him? I, I'm in a, I'm in a place now where I, I've learned to appreciate, I don't want to say appreciate, but recognize that everything in my past has gotten me where I am today. And fortunately, I survived it. And that's mostly helping me deal with the, some of the grief in the past. But if I could go back to that Bobby <laughs> for fear of changing something today, and honestly, I don't, I don't know. I, I've pulled from his experiences in those boarding schools to help me today, whether I needed to be strong, whether I needed it for a performance, it, it served me in some way. So I don't know that I, that I would, or, and honestly, knowing who he was at that time and where he was, I don't know that I would, he couldn't hear it, but I would definitely fucking hold him Aww. and just like hug him that he thought he needed yeah yeah i would just i would just hold him you know it, and just hug him and just give him some warmth to feel it's it's interesting that you say that because as a therapist a lot of times i do inner child work and stuff like that a lot of times i ask people to imagine sitting down on the side of a bed or at a table and talking to their little version of themselves and 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 asking just instead of assuming asking that inner child, what do you need? And a lot of times that's what the inner child, the answer just pops up immediately. And it's just, they just want hugs and love. You know, I love that you are not afraid to, you know, show your full emotions to get into your vulnerability. And that as you told your story, you weren't ashamed to cry. So what would you say to somebody who is ashamed that stops themselves from crying because they think maybe it's a weakness or that it's shameful. You have to cry and you have to let it, let it out. It's, it's for people who, uh, who try very hard not to cry. I, and I get it. And I obviously, because for a lot of my life, I was the same way, even though, which was annoying because I was crying for a lot of my life. And I, I hated it because I felt like it was making me less manly and one more failure on my part and so on and so forth. But at a, at a certain point in my life, one, during one of the give ups, I allowed for the crying to happen every time. And it's necessary. It's, 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 I think it's necessary for our emotional bodies as sweating is for our physical bodies. Like if we're not at, at some point, I don't now, I'm just a musician. I don't know what's going on technically, but I know that something is released, that something something happens that that we need as a human uh, when we cry. And so stifling that or even like holding negative feelings about that is <laughs> putting it simply it's not good for your health, but it's it's not good for your heart. It's not good for your your ability to be a human and 
it, I think if you're interacting with anyone that you love, like people you love, and you care about how how they're being treated, recognize as a you're one of the people who's who's treating those people however they're treating, and so you need to make sure that that person yourself is is well. And if that person never cries, I can tell you that they're not well. And you know that when you those for those of us who do like who can't hold it back after a while and like it happens, we feel better because we're we're supposed to. And it's like it's one of those obvious ways our bodies communicate what we're supposed to be doing. You know, when we're starving, food always feels better, just a process of eating. I haven't peed in an hour, which is my case right now. When I go pee, it's gonna feel better. We, it's just how we we know to do things and, and crying is necessary. I don't, I, the only times I would uh, I do any regulating of my crying is when I think it'll make the other person uncomfortable. <laughs> but even but even then, then, uh, you know, I decide if it's worth it because, you know, it's my health. Yeah, I mean, and now all this research related to somatic psychotherapy backs everything that you're saying. Next question. While you were still adjusting to so much, you met Zania in high school. You later married her, and you are still with her today. What has she meant to you as you have navigated this thing called life? Oh man! Well, yeah, we started. We I think we were seventeen when we when we were or eighteen when we started. I know it was like the last four days of uh, high school, and when we officially got together and. So there's a lot of my story. She was she was there for it. She's been a constant and and like a stay stable like sense of ground. <laughs> yeah, grounding. And that's the word. Yeah. <laughs> she's been grounding and also she's she's been a home. I've I've done a lot of moving since I got especially the first few years after I got kicked out trying to find a place to stay but she's always been there when I when I when I got kicked out she quit her job so she can give me rides to school because I didn't have a car either wow and she would drive me which was far because she lived in San Bernardino and I went to Mount Sac so she'd drive an hour to come pick me up in Riverside and then an hour to drive to to Mount Sac to take me to school but she's she as being the performer type and having ADD and just being the energetic kind of person I am She's helped me just very often. I feel like, you know, that, that, that plate in the microwave, the turntable that spins around as it's going. And sometimes if you like take it out and put it back in, crook it, it'll just like bounce around while the microwave is on and not really have like its grounding place. Zanaya has been like my, my anchor and she's been, she's shown me love through some of the parts of my a lot of my life where I felt like I wasn't worthy of love and where it was like really really I don't know if anyone's like ever loved anyone with depression or who was suicidal but it's not easy especially because when you know there's nothing you can actually do but I don't know that I could have asked for a better person to be with me then she she knew exactly, which is tricky because I'm not an easy person to console. I don't have a lot of capacity to handle pleasant feelings, especially when I'm feeling bad. I'm just used to stay, you know, just feeling bad. But she's she's known how to how to love me and how to how to be there for me, how to support me. She knows I'm the performer type. I'm big energy musician, and she's she's 
with me wherever wherever I am at every given point. When I decided to, I wanted to do opera instead of choir, she was like, cool, let's do this. When I decided, to, when I started doing hip hop, she was like, cool, let's do this. Always been there to support me. She's been weak where I've been strong. She she's like very complimentary. I'm kind of disorganized. She's very, very organized. Yeah, I sorry, I don't even know where to start or stop, apparently. <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful for Zamaya because... If I were to, like, before, assuming I were, like, a spirit and I could choose what my life would be, I think I would have still chosen her out of, like, anyone on the planet because I can't imagine what, if I were to make a list of, like, the perfect attributes, I'd probably leave off some things that Zanaya is for my partner. And so for someone who is going through this journey, like, existing with me and, and partnership and doing the human experience, this journey that is life, I, for me, I don't know that I could have asked for or found it, but I'm, I'm still shocked that we're, that we're still together for, for most of our lives at this point. And I'm just grateful for her. So you mentioned your ADHD and your depression. And I've seen that, that as of late, you're talking more and more publicly, like on social media about your mental health. And it sounds like that you're realizing that, you know, way back when all of the times that the teachers and your parents insinuated that, you know, you're lazy or you're just not paying attention on purpose, that sort of thing, that it was really, you know, your struggles with untreated ADHD and, you know, as you call it, high functioning depression that were responsible for some of those things. And and recently, one of the specific things you said was something to the effect of, not a direct quote, but a lot in the spirit of, you know, I spent years telling myself that I was fine because I was supposed to be fine and to be otherwise I thought would be a weakness. And it turns out that avoiding those truths was my actual weakness. So I would love to hear you talk more about your realizations that you had related to your ADHD diagnosis and also what you might say to those people who, you know, have shame that stops them from getting care or treating these untreated conditions. I'm one of my favorite things that's happening in the world right now is that a lot of stigmas are being destigmatized. Uh, a lot of a lot of long-standing lies or hidden truths are, are being corrected, and along with that is the the stigma around therapy or just having a mental health issue or concern has meant something about I'm so glad that that's that's starting to drift away because and that's partial part of the reason why I'm I guess adding my voice to it because I recognize that as a cisgender black male who's like able-bodied and like successful that there's an image of who I am, especially as a like a happy, high energy performer. It's like it's one more. Oh, he's he's got it all together. And I know I've known for how long I haven't, quote unquote, had it together. So I and I think I would have gotten help sooner or if I had permission, <laughs> if I knew it was OK, if I'd seen someone that I respect do it. And now I could respect myself while I did it, because until then, you know, if I if I do it, I'll, I'll lose respect for myself. Uh, because everything else I've seen up to this point saying that, you know, getting therapy is like, oh, he's in therapy. Something's wrong with him. And 
I realize now that if you've if you were actually born on this earth and went through a birth, already there's trauma. You can use therapy. It's like you need like we we and it's it's if you're like work doing any any kind of personal development, whether you're trying to read more, eat better, or I don't know, or think better thoughts or use better words, if you have any interest in getting being a better you, therapy is is it's a prerequisite. It's almost like you don't obviously I'm not a therapist, but I feel like like you don't I didn't feel like I fully knew myself. Like I was trying to work on myself and improve myself. I didn't know who I was working on or what or how or what I needed. Yeah, if you're working, if you're improving yourself, it's kind of like someone going to the gym to work out and never working on their legs. That's that's kind of it's just you're not really improving yourself. It's 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 necessary. Do the shit in, in private. Go secretly and get therapy. And like in a little bit, you'll realize how how silly it is to keep it a secret because there's a lot wrong with the world. And unfortunately, that's resulted in things being wrong with us. And if you think nothing's wrong with you, that is a clear sign that something's wrong with you. I promise. <laughs> I, I, I guarantee it. Like, that's not the case. Hell, if you think you're good, you got it together, then go to therapy because it'll just take you up another notch from wherever you are. Like, I can't say this enough, please. Like, if you think you have ADD, go find out for sure. Because ADD is almost like it's... I learned really recently one of the symptoms of my ADD is it's one of the, well, one of the ways it shows up is I have trouble starting tasks unless I can see what it already looks like done. So one of the ways I showed up in my life, speaking of school, was I could never start. I had so much trouble. If I had a paper, just starting it was, I couldn't just do it until I saw someone else's paper. And for I, I always thought oh, oh oh you're trying to cheat off my paper you know that's what people always like said and even though what i put in my paper was completely different and often a better paper than theirs but something about the add requires that i see the finished test but now that i know that there's so many i now have the ability to do so many things that i would have never been able to do before because i know how to trick my mind into being able to do that now and so that's one way just learning AD, uh, learning uh, or actually dealing with my ADD has not only like shored up some weak spots for me, but has given me an added benefit of, I can't think of the word where you have an advantage. There it is. <laughs> like an added advantage over some people who don't have ADD. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's important. It's essential. It's one of the best parts of this human journey. Like, trust me, mental health, get it. Check. Absolutely. Okay. So the other day I was talking to my friend Pierre who travels all over the continent of Africa on the regular. And he said, and I quote, a new freaking world in Africa is coming. I mean, the Black Panther movie is not far off. And end quote. What are some things you'd like people to know about Nigeria, Africa or Africans? Oh, it's so funny that there's still so many people that still think of Africa as like uncivilized and huts um, and yeah, underdeveloped. No, I'll speak mostly for Nigeria. I know this is happening a lot of Af in a lot in Africa, but most of Africa is has been out of colonization for enough decades now where things are starting to really. There's like a gold rush happening in Nigeria right now 
where there's like a booming middle class. And so shopping malls are showing up everywhere, uh, movie theaters, like a bunch of industries from other countries are like, Nigeria is developing very, very fast. And a lot of uh, innovation is taking place there because one of the, the upsides of kind of, I guess I would say starting behind is it gives you a different perspective of a better way to do this. You know, you when you see things from the outside, when you're not developing along with other everyone else. Yeah, no, Nigeria is is in in a number of ways, I would say, has their stuff together more than the I'm not even going to just say California more than the United States. The education is rock. So, I mean, if you know a Nigerian person, you probably think like, oh, they're smart. Or if you have a there's a good chance you have a doctor that's Nigerian or, you know, someone who has it because Every time I meet someone and they I say my last name, it's like, oh, my doctor's from Nigeria. It's like, I know, because that's the only thing we're allowed to grow up to be. Uh, <laughs> Nigeria is very, very, it's fun. It is exciting. So the, uh, the art scene in Nigeria, Jesus Christ. Something about, there's some gene in the Yoruba tribe that makes us these phenomenal artists. Some of the most realistic like sculptures go back to, oh, actually, never mind. I'm getting sidetracked. Go to go to Africa, anywhere, anywhere in Africa, except the places you know right now are having a hard time. But Nigeria, once again, that's what I'll speak from because I know is um it's it, it's just beautiful. The people are fun, nice, happy. I realized in my story I kind of made Nigeria sound like a dark place. No, Nigeria is like a lot of fun. We like to party, we like to have a good time. We really just like most black people in the United States, we just want to have a good time. And we are really good at having a good time. And yeah, that's 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 what I'd, I'll say about Nigeria. <laughs> so you, you talked a lot about the racism and the classism in the opera world. So have Black opera singers and, you know, other professionals organized and pushed back? And if they oh. have, what's been the response? Yes, finally they have. So, <sighs> okay. There's a lot of racism in opera. <laughs> and unfortunately, there are, well, I always draw the unfortunately, but well, because of the racism, it's unfortunate that there's so many, there are so many Black opera singers and people, whenever I tell people I'm Black opera singers, like, oh my gosh, you guys are rare. I'm like, no, there are thousands of us and I've met us, but we're often the last to be considered to be hired. It's very known that if they have, if they do a production of Porgy and Bess, for instance, which is the most famous black opera when they do a production of that it's very it's often known that the cast will be paid less than any other opera with the same amount of people because the cast of porgy and bess is all black it's kind of stipulated in the the contract for the the people who own the publishing rights that porgy and bess is exclusively performed with a black cast which has been one of the most helpful things for black opera singers because Porgy and Bess is also one of the highest, I'm going to say it is the highest selling opera that exists. The Metropolitan Opera finally did Porgy and Bess again, not last year, but the year before. And it was the first time that they've ever had to add extra performances because there was such a demand for the tickets. Now, there are dozens of Black operas, operas written by Black people. Porgy and Bess is the only one you'll probably ever see on a stage. And when you see it on the stage, it, it'll be, it's done very, very rarely. And so often for a lot of us opera singers, that's our opportunity to get on stage. 
And along, and the other issue is Porgy and Bess is an opera about poor black people, essentially. Which I think, n never mind. I, I was going to say that's part of the reason why they, they sell so much because I think the opera audience just likes seeing poor black people. But that's that's another another conversation. So what has happened between us not getting hired or rehired or or, or a lot of just a, a lot of gatekeeping and systematic ways of keeping people who are lower income out of opera. It's just expensive to train as an opera singer. So with all of that, about 800 Black opera singers, mostly in the United States, but a lot of us internationally as well, have come together to form the Black Opera Alliance. And the Black Opera Alliance was formed last year, in like the middle of last year. And in that time, one of the first things they did is they put together a pledge pretty much asking opera, opera companies to sign this pledge and just say, you're going to be equitable to black people. So if you live, if you, your company is in a city where it, that it's 2% black, we would like your organization to be 2% black as well. Your cast to be 2% black and, and so on and so forth. Hire people in decision-making roles. And so, so they put this pledge out and gotten all of the biggest opera companies in the in the country to sign it and agree to make these changes and they're starting to make those changes and they're doing a lot of making a lot of big changes in the opera world right now the black opera alliance so i if if anyone like is looking for some a cause to support the black opera alliance right now they're doing they're still raising funds to to keep doing the things they're doing and they recently just became a 501c3 so it's a nonprofit situation so if you want to hop over to black opera alliance's website or instagram page that would be dope because they they could definitely definitely use the help and the support because there has been some pushback as you would imagine from the opera industry because I, I, there's always pushback when black people try and get what get the bare minimum so so if you owned your own opera theatrical company with unlimited funding. What would it look like? What kind of shows would you put on? What would your cast look like? What would you envision? Man, uh, so many things. So my primary concern will be to make music that actually entertains people today. I, I still, I, I hate that opera is trying to sell an 18th 18th century toy to a 2021 audience and wondering why they don't want to play with it. I want to make new music and work with popular artists like these big hip hop producers. I want to compose an opera with them. I want to take some old operas that are already like these old opera stories and revamp them to make them more modern. And I want to take stories from uh, like I was talking with my dad the other day. He was telling me some of our like folk songs and stories from that are unique to our culture, those old tribal stories, these stories never get told internationally. And they're riveting. They're really good. I mean, Nigerians, we're good storytellers. Some of these stories need to be told. Need to, these songs need to be performed. So I want to, I want to make, I, if I had, if I had my own company, I would be putting on operas that, that are hip hop and because that's my first love and opera. I would be rewriting new operas, reworking old operas. And I would honestly just, I would want to create a space where Black classical musicians specifically, just because they've been like boxed out and had to work so hard, a space where we could come together and make art that feels good for us. And make art that feels good for our, our families too, because 
often <laughs> there's a lot of black opera singers or black classical musicians who are the only like classical person in the family and they want to invite their family to the sh to the concert you know the, the family i want to make music that we are excited to invite our families to because we know that they will have a good time for the two or three hours that they're there well one thing that i've noticed you know along the lines of what you're saying like you know we want to make what feels good to us is you know one thing that i've noticed you know because i've talked to black you know people that are black that are creatives across different genres whether it's in tv film the arts you know like making artwork paintings or in opera now and there's one common theme that i hear which is that white people when they're in charge they want to see depressive black art yep and, and so that's why, you know, that's why you don't see the joy. I've gone into art, ga you know, like private art rooms by black artists. And I'm like, why have I never seen this joy anywhere? And they're like, because the art curators are white and they want to see depressive black art. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like if, if <laughs> you know, if we made some room for more black people to run the show, you we would see all this, this joy, you know that's that is being hidden really, yeah really that's it's it's upsetting that it almost feels like black people's joy upsets some other people like they don't deserve happiness and it's upsetting to say the least but yeah i think i think with provi provided the space uh, i mean there'd be the acclimating period that i guess the world would have to would have of getting used to seeing a full story where nothing bad happens to the black people. They start off good and they end off good. Maybe the it's some other conflict. Maybe we get new stories. I feel like we're telling the same 20 stories over and over in different combinations because they're coming from the same people, the same cultures. I'm loving so much of like of the media that's shifting that's in that's we're getting so many more writers that are LG, LGBTQ from the community. And we're getting more interesting television. I'm like, oh, this experience I've never had while watching television because the same five guys essentially have been writing all of television and movies forever. And and it's it's just old. It's it's gonna be weird, but I think I think it could happen. Even if I don't get my own situation, I think we're on our way to showing more instances of black joy, black nor what is normal actual normal and that's the other downside of these images of the black struggle being per just everywhere us black people grow up thinking that that's what it is to be black and so and you hear it in the black community if you're doing too well you're not really black if you're doing some if you're not struggling it's not black and it's it's such a, a toxic uh, belief that i think we're starting to work through mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you found your calling as the hip hopra guy. So I want to know what you envision for your future and also what factors have to fall into place for that future to manifest for you. Or I can get in my pun, what opportunities have to present themselves. <laughs> Yay, she did it. <laughs> I did it. I got my pun in there. Thank you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> What opportunities? I feel like part of my calling, honestly, has been I've embraced the dichotomies that I like or the juxtapositions that are my life. You know, I've 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 lived a portion of my life in a really wealthy family. 
and a portion of my life very unwealthy. And so I enjoy things from both worlds. And I feel like <laughs> I say both worlds. I, I, I enjoy, you know, I enjoy things from both worlds. And I think because of those parallel experiences, I've, I've ended up just enjoying opposites uh, in the same space. And through the creation of my music and just and uh, and whatever memes and silly videos I'm posting out outside, I'm finding that there's so many other people who like the combination of the classy and the classless, classless or whatever. Just things they don't they like the picture of the, the the construction worker having tea with a ballerina in like their full like that. It it's like there are people who enjoy that, and I feel like I'm kind of like I'm allowing myself to be a beacon for other people like me. Um, because I, I'm, I'm seeing in my future a community of people like me who are, who have never really had a place because they're a little weird, they're a little nerdy, but they're like a little woo-woo as well, but they're also kind of like vain a little or whatever. Those combinations of things that we don't normally attribute to the same thing, like allowing the breaking down of those barriers that keep them separate because often they're they're really not and so in my future i see myself creating <laughs> a, well music another uh full album which i'm working on right now of operatic hip-hop music that is i think it's going to change some things musically because uh no, no one's done what i'm doing so far and i'm i'm gonna go ahead and say i'm really good at it so I think after I do it, I'll give some people permission to do the same thing. And I would like to work with work with other people, essentially kind of make this a thing. This this and I'll say hip opera for now, but essentially I wanted to explore, expand into a culture of artists being able to do what they want. And and uh, actually artists exploring the actual like crossing over of different boundaries and not not in the safe way we've done it before. Things that, yeah, just getting a little more, exploring this new world that we've created by um, bringing, you know, uh, whatever damage we've done to white supremacy, I know it's not gone, but whatever we've done to that, like that space we've created, living in that, where there's so much more understanding of how patriarchy and just, well, a lot of what, Kate, you refer to as dominator culture, a lot of that is, is being kind of like toned down a little bit and there's space being created. And I feel for us artists, there's a lot of the space has never existed before. People are looking for black people being black and what that actually looks like. And that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. So I'm, I'm seeing, I don't know if it's a record label as well, but a, a theater company, but an, an entity that allows for a culture, the creation of a culture of these artists especially in the classical or classical leaning or classical liking um having a place to just be all right so thank you so much for coming on you know you know i this has been a, an amazing interview don't you think sunny oh absolutely absolutely and i it's really made me think about a lot of things. And it's also made me really eager to see this future that you just described. I cannot wait for it. Yeah, me, me neither. Oh, well, as far as the factors to make it possible, I just finished a crowdfunding. But if anyone meant to make any donations to my PayPal, I have the link in my in my profile because that, I think that's the only thing kind of holding me back right now, that in time. But I think I'll create it. 
And, and we can put the link in the show notes. And yeah, I mean, Trevor Noah, you know, I mean, it's like, I keep on wanting you to be on the daily show, you know, I keep on, you know, some smart record label label or, or, or somebody needs to just scoop you up and blow you sky high into being famous, you know, super duper famous. I mean, you're already well known, but you need to be mm-hmm. out there. So absolutely. Everyone knows about you. Absolutely. Well, Babatunde, thank you so much for sharing with us. It is like I said, it's been so valuable. And I also want to thank the listeners for being here with us too. And we invite you to join us again next episode when we dare to open deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.